We're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. So every week here at Grace Bible Church, this is uh, kind of a center point for what we do. We, we learn from God's word because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. We want to be listeners. We want to be learners. We've been in a series in Proverbs. It's right in the middle of your Bible. So if you have a Bible, crack it open in the middle. If you don't have one, uh, grab one of the Bibles under the chairs. You can turn to around page 540. We'll be pretty close to where we're landing. In this Proverbs series, we've talked a lot about this the last few weeks. Uh, Joey mentioned it last week. And also, I just want to say, man, Joey did a fantastic job last week. For those of you who don't know, he did a great job preaching God's word and also like a million things broke into pieces while I was gone to the Grand Canyon. So um, that's kind of how it goes sometimes. And the pastors, the elders picked up the slack and, and everything's cool, right? So thank God for, for good leadership. Um, also, in case you were worried, we did survive the Grand Canyon, okay? So we made it, we survived. Yes, praise the Lord. Um, yeah, I came out without it. Thank you. Thank you for that. I feel like that was a pity clap now. Um, <laughs> No major injuries, but here's the thing, y'all. When you're turning 50, you can survive the Grand Canyon without an injury, and then you can reach under your sink for aftershave lotion. I was grabbing the aftershave lotion this morning and somehow like turned the wrong way, and now I've got this horrible crick in my neck. So if I look decrepit and weird, it's because of the aftershave lotion, not because of the Grand Canyon. So I just wanted to clarify that. We did great. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, uh, but we had a great time, um, and I got to do it with my best friend. So thanks, babe. Good idea. Um, So we're going to study, I'm getting all off track now, we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about marriage today. So we're going to start with Proverbs 18.22. Now, uh, Joey mentioned this last week, it's unusual for us to do topical, right? What we usually do are kind of bread and butter, 80% of the time as a church is we do what's called expositional or expository preaching. What that means is we grab the Bible We read it book by book and expose what the Bible says. So what that means is that we are in the habit of the Bible leading us where to go. Topical preaching is not evil. It's not wrong. But what happens is if you do that every week, what can happen is the preacher begins to force his topics onto the text, right? Preacher's like, hey, I want to tell people to give me more money. And then you go looking for those verses, right? And so we just, we try to say, man, let's 70%, 80% of the time do expositional preaching. We're just going to open a book and study through it. Proverbs is tricky, though, with that, because the first nine chapters unfold in that typical way, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, and then around chapter 10, it just explodes into these one-liners, right? So Proverbs, the rest of it, 10 through uh, 30, it's just one-liners, one-liners, little, little tidbits, and that's, that's the, the territory we're in now. So we're learning from the foundation we set, expositionally going through chapters 1 through 9, how to interpret now the little one verse tidbits. And so what we're going to do, a little Bible study method, is we're going to look at the topic of preaching, uh, topic of preaching, we're going to look at the topic of marriage here in Proverbs, and we're going to take this one starting verse, and we're going to look at a few other verses and say, these are some of the major teachings in Proverbs about marriage, and we're going to try to compare that to what the rest of the Bible says, right? We, we call that comparing Scripture with Scripture. Because again, we believe it's a unified whole. This is one message that God is good and he is gracious and he is saving a people for himself. And because of that, we can trust him and obey him. And so that's a unified whole. And so we always want to, when we're interpreting little tidbits and topics, do it in light of the greater whole. And so the big idea is marriage. And we're calling the sermon this week, loving unity, loving unity. So we're going to start with Proverbs 18, 22. And before we look at that verse... I want us to think about 
in perspective, where does the Bible start with marriage? It starts in Genesis chapter 2. Where does Genesis chapter 2 fall in line? Well, it comes right after Genesis chapter 1, right? It's getting really obvious now. What, if you can remember, is the theme and pattern of Genesis chapter 1? There is one repeated phrase that God says again and again when he's creating the world. It is good. 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 He says that again and again and again through chapter 1. And then chapter 2, we're zeroing in on the creation of humanity, which we're told in chapter 1 is made male and female. That's a part of the deal, right? Male's not more important than female. We need both parts. But he zeroes in on chapter 2, and he's like, let me me explain how this went down, right? Right? After a whole chapter of it is good, it is good, it is good, God says, I'm going to march all the animals before Adam. I'm going to show all the animals to Adam. Two by two, he's seeing all the animals, he's naming all the animals, all the animals have a partner. And God says, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a perfect, fitted partner, suitable for him. And so marriage is created in that context. So what is marriage? Marriage is the unity in love of two people coming together. Now in the rest of the scripture, and really even right there, the rest of the scripture, it's, it's very clear that that's a man and a woman. It's forever. It's in the, the boundaries of a covenant promise. That's the definition of marriage. We've got an extended statement on that in our doctrinal statement. Um, so just to clarify, We do hold to a more traditional biblical definition of that, but we also have a very gracious posture where we say, and we know that the world thinks we're nuts for believing that. Probably a lot of you in this room think we're nuts for believing that. We love you. We'd love to talk to you about it more. We'd love to have the grace on your behalf of uh, allowing us to share our position and why we think it's what's best for human flourishing and why it's always the right idea to obey God and do what he says. So we'd love to talk to you about that more. We don't We don't want you to feel like we're beating up on you because we disagree with you if you have a different view on this subject, but we want to lovingly lead you to the biblical position. Uh, So a great place to start is looking up our our constitution. If you go to our website, begrace.org, you can look up our doctrinal statement, the Grace Bible Church Constitution. We have a statement at the very end about marriage and sexuality. And I just want to reiterate that we believe that everyone is called by Jesus to leave something that they prefer as they follow him. So it's not like straight people just magically obey God all the time and have no problems. Every human being has a trust decision to make. Is Jesus really good? Is he really gracious? And if he's really gracious, then I can trust him and I can follow him. And I don't like this thing he's asked me to do, and I don't like that thing he's asked me to do, but I trust him, so it's worth it. And so we just want to call you that we're all in that same boat together. We're all stumbling forward, repenting of things that we wish Jesus didn't ask us to let go of. But all of us are being told, you need to let go of that. Trust me, you need to let go of that. We're all letting go of things as we pursue Jesus. And so we want to call you together towards that. Now, in the context of marriage, our society has kind of thrown out the traditional definition of marriage. And it's to a point of like, what's even the point of marriage, right? Like we're, we're doubting its goodness. And so I just wanted to start with a bedrock verse about marriage being a gift. So we'll start with uh, Proverbs 18, 22. 
that outlines that marriage is a gift from God's hand. It's a good thing, a good, good thing. And then we'll look at how to be married from some other Proverbs, okay? So Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Let me read it again. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, as we said, Proverbs is kind of in a paradigm sense, talking to young men, right? But this applies the other way too, ladies. If you found a husband, that's also a good thing, okay? It's not like it's a bad thing if you found a husband, but a good thing if you found a right? So this goes both ways. Marriage is a good thing. It's a gift from God's hand. And I want you to know that I'm, I'm praying for you this week because some of you are not married and you wish that you were married. Some of you are married and you wish that you were not married. And so we're all in like tough situations. I'm praying for you. We all need to hear what God's ideal is so we can either do it well if we're married or as single folk in the church, be good brothers and sisters in Christ that, that push people together in loving unity. How can we do that well? How can we encourage them to do it well? Because Ephesians 5 says that when people love each other well, as married couples, they give the world a picture of the gospel. People are like, ah, oh, that's, that's what love is supposed to be like. Ah, oh, now I understand God loves me. It's like a little billboard for the gospel. So let me pray for us and pray for our time in the word. God, we need your help. This is a huge subject. I'm old and I'm going to want to rant for a long time. So will you help me to focus? Um, Lord, will you help us to stick to what the text says? Uh, will you help us to see your grace and your goodness to us? We all struggle in different ways. We've all seen this go wrong. We've been hurt. We've hurt others. God, we need your kindness. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the starting point is Proverbs eighteen twenty-two. It's a gift. Marriage is a gift from God. Definitionally, marriage is union, right? So in Genesis 2, it says they become one flesh. They leave their father and mother. They're starting a new family, right? So at its core, marriage is also about multiplication. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that, but that's been part of our culture's confusion, right? Uh, I'm not going to define for you like how many kids you have to have and when you need to have them, right? But we just have to recognize it's a part of the apparatus. Like that's built into God's plan, right? You see that in Genesis chapter 2? That's part of God's plan. And not everybody has children. Not everybody uh, has done the th- same things or accomplished the same things in their marriage. But we just got to understand that there's like this kind of core idea that points us to God of loving unity that produces something for the world. I think that's a good way to say it, right? There's this loving unity. So we see it in the Trinity, right? The Trinity, in a sense, you know, they're not having children, right? But the Trinity is this perfect loving unity that then produces this creation and this love and this grace for the world. So we're kind of living that out in our marriages. So even if you don't have biological children, your, your love, your unity with one another is going to produce good things in the life of other people. And that's what we're called to. So this loving unity is going to be exhibited in three ways, right? Um, The hardness of life, the difficulty of life hits us, knocks us around. How how do we do this, right? Well, we've got three ways that we build unity. Number one, we build unity by teaching, by teaching. That's a common refrain in Proverbs, that the husband and wife are teaching God's truth together side by side. We'll look at that in more detail. Number two, we build unity by friendship. We got to be friends, Build unity by friendship. Some of you are struggling with that one. Number three, build unity by affection. 
We build unity by affection. So we'll jump throughout Proverbs, but it'll be Proverbs 1, then Proverbs 2, then Proverbs 5. So it won't be jumping around quite as much as it has been other weeks. Uh, So number one, we want to recognize that we build unity by teaching. We build unity practically, functionally, day in, day out, by teaching. Look at Proverbs 1, verses 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Uh, We've seen this said something like this in many different places. We've looked at the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 6, 20 through 21 says almost the exact same thing. It's this idea of like, you got teaching from mom, you got teaching from dad, grab hold of that, right? And so what we can miss is that they're teaching the same thing, right? We've said this multiple times. A lot of us grew up maybe in a home where your parents weren't teaching God's word. That's the assumption of Proverbs is that your parents should be teaching you God's word. So then listen to it, right? And so it's reiterating that here, and I would say another assumption is mom and dad, or for our purposes in marriage, husband and wife are teaching the same thing. You're moving in the same direction. You're you're rowing together in unity. Do you believe the same things? Are you teaching the same things? One of the ways to practically build unity in your marriage is to love the same truths. So in a sense, I should say, we're both teaching the same truth, but really, before that, you're receiving the same teaching, right? Are you placing yourself under the Word of God? Are you listening to it, obeying it, walking together, struggling with it? Now, this is something that builds unity in the broader church as well, right? So this is a great thing to apply. Singles, beyond just being married, this is something we should all be doing, right? So how do we say this in the broader church life? We say, join a group. We say it again and again. Practice joining a group together and listening to the same teaching. Practice gathering in worship and sitting under the same teaching. Practice teaching to one another the same thing as we sing and pray and celebrate God's word. Colossians 3 talks about this. Ephesians reiterates it. It says we are to speak to one another the word of Christ. We are to build one another up. We are to be exhorting one another. Part of coming to worship is to receive teaching. Part of coming to worship is to teach each other. That's what Colossians and Ephesians says. When you're singing, you're teaching one another. By the way, just an aside, we we post the songs that we're doing this week, every week, or you know, a few days ahead of time on Facebook, and I guess on Instagram too. Anybody knows it on Instagram too? I try not to look at Instagram. But anyway, I think it's on both places. So you can practice before you come. I don't know if you knew this, you're the choir. Did you know that? You're the choir at Grace Bible Church. So like you need to look up your songs and come ready, okay? So we post them every week. We're going to do four songs, five songs. We're going to post them for you. you got recordings. You can see which ones we're going to sing. Listen to them. Get ready. Practice your parts. Come in ready to sing, okay? Because Colossians and Ephesians both say that, that that's part of what the church is doing. We're building unity by teaching each other the word of Christ through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, admonishing one another, saying, come on, you can do it. It's part of what we do when we gather in Christian worship. We're building unity. Now, in the Old Testament context, uh, teaching, instruction, there's all kinds of different words, wisdom, right, that come from the mouth of your parents. It should be one voice. It should be united. Here's another little aside practically for parents. Make sure you back each other up, right? 
Like if, if little Johnny says, I don't want to go to bed, and dad says, you got to go to bed, and then mom says, no, nah, you don't have to go to bed, it's okay. you got a problem, okay? You can't do that to each other. you got to support one another. Unless it's like, you know, the other parent's telling him to break a commandment or kill somebody. That, then you step in, right? But like on the little things, the day-to-day, agree with each other. Teach the same thing. That's a very practical in-the-weeds thing. If you disagree with the call they made, you, you tell them that later, right? Backstage. You don't, you don't say that in, in front of little Johnny. Okay, so that's a practical thing with parenting. But I want to go back to the big idea of, of teaching and instruction. In the Bible, this word uh, Torah, you might have heard before, is a Hebrew word for instruction, and it can literally mean directions, right? Do you know where you're going? We live in a crazy, chaotic world, and the only way we can know where we're going is if God breaks in and speaks to us. There was a point at which we got lost in the Grand Canyon, which is pretty hard to do, y'all, because it's just like a marked path, right? You just like keep following the path, keep following the path. We're walking along, and all of a sudden, like, there's water on our feet. We're like, how did this happen? We're walking in the middle of a stream. And so I grabbed a picture here my wife took. After like 50 yards in a stream, we were like, I don't think this is the path anymore, right? Like that doesn't make sense that we're walking through water. So I pull out the, the map and I'm checking it because I need outside consultation at this point, right? I need Torah. I need direction. I need law. I need someone who knows what they're doing to tell me what to do because I don't know what I'm doing, right? And that's so often where we find ourselves in life. And so again, teaching that we receive, God's word can bind us together. It can unify us as a couple. And again, as a broader people of God, we all have different cultures. We have different preferences. We have different likes, different musical styles, different ways that we dress. But we have one core teaching that unites us going in the same direction. I want to summarize it for us as we think about the Torah, the direction, the teaching of God. I say this in a lot of different ways but it's essentially the grace of God for the obedience of God, right? The grace of God. God's a saving God. He loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose from the dead for you. A picture of that that has been echoing around in my brain for the last couple of weeks from our small group is, is Hebrews 7.25. Jesus always lives to intercede for you. He will not stop until you are saved absolutely to the end. The grace of God. It unites us. It unites married couples. It unites churches. And that leads us to obey. The only way we can obey God and do what he asks us to do is if we really believe he's good. He has our best interest in mind. He's saving us. And that allows us to let go of those pet sins. As I said, we all have different pet sins, but we're letting go of those. That's called repentance. We're turning from the sin and turning to Jesus. Jesus, I trust you. I'll follow you. I'll do what you say. Yeah, a lot of days I prefer that sin, but you know what? I trust you. Your grace has proven to me that you're worth following, so I'm going to follow you. So that core message of the grace of God to obey the the direction of God is the primary teaching that unites us. So we receive that teaching, and we give that teaching back out. That's that's the way it happens for church members, whether you're, you're married or not, but also for married people as a couple building unity. So number one, then you give that teaching out for your own children, your biological children, your adopted children. Um, So remember, they're your responsibility, 
We build a lot of extra structures in life to help each other out, right? We call them schools, Sunday schools, things like that, right? Youth groups. Those are all great gifts. It's great to have a teacher help you out, teach your kids to read, but it's your responsibility to teach your kids to read. It's great to have Sunday school teachers that teach your kids the Bible, but it's your responsibility to teach your kids the Bible, right? Like you're in charge. You're the deputy. You got the badge. So don't forsake that authority and that responsibility. And then ask for help. You need a community. You need help, right? We all need help. Take advantage of the help that's out there. But remember, you never, you never abdicate your leadership in teaching your children. That, they are your responsibility. Number two, we should teach spiritual children. So Isaiah 54, 55, and 56 clarifies this. As I said, fundamentally, marriage is about reproduction. That's part of how God's wired the world. But he reassures his people in Isaiah 54, 55, and 56 that in the new covenant, the church, the people of God, will reproduce spiritually even if they can't have kids. Even if they're barren women or impotent men, they will reproduce. They will have children. So the New Testament highlights spiritual children in this incredible way and says that's, that's really even more important. And so we don't want to forsake that. We're all a part of that together. We, we all pitch in, right? We have different roles, right? One body, many parts. We have different skills. I like to teach a lot, right? Others of you may want to be in the background doing more mercy or administration or helping or organizing, but we're all together teaching the children of God to grow up together, right? And we're also a part of spiritual birthing. We call it being born again, right? John chapter 3 as we believe in Jesus, we're, we're born again to new spiritual life. As we proclaim the gospel, people hear the word, they believe, they become spiritual babies, and then we need to teach them. We need to help them grow up in the Lord. So that's a part of what the church does. The church is, is birthing spiritual children through the gospel and then training them up through scripture. So we're all, we're all in that together. We're all called to do that. So again, that can uniquely unite a married couple. This is an important thing to pursue as a married couple, to build unity in your marriage, but it's also something that the whole church is in for. We're all, we're all to be applying this and teaching spiritual children. So we teach the grace of God so that people can obey the rules of God. So what that means is, before we move on to the next point, there are two basic postures towards teaching that you can have here, learning it and then sharing it, right? Receiving teaching and pushing out teaching. Two basic postures. So that means there's this one posture that some of you are tempted towards that I just want to encourage you not to sit on this, this third posture. So one posture is you receive it, and then as you receive it, your heart is going to be stirred and you're going to want to share it, right? But what happens in churches, especially uh, in Christendom or in the Bible Belt, this is starting to dissolve in our culture, but I think it still exists, is you got people that are like, well, I just kind of grew up in it. And yeah, I mean, I don't really love Jesus, but I go to church. Like, it doesn't really like grab hold of my heart, but I'm kind of coasting along. I just encourage you that if the love of Jesus is really being received by you, then you're going to want to pitch in to the body of Christ and give that teaching back out to others. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean preaching 40-minute sermons from a platform, it might mean behind the scenes, pitching in financially, organizationally, helping out administratively, but you're going to want to pitch in and help birth and train up spiritual babies in the body of Christ. 
Does that make sense? We'll, we'll, we'll move on from here. The second thing that we do after building unity by teaching, by receiving it and giving it out, is we build unity by friendship. We build unity by friendship. So our culture is a very romantic culture, and so our culture can make it seem like that marriage is all about the kind of soulmate, perfect match, face-to-face dynamic. But much of the day in and day out of marriage is the the shoulder-to-shoulder dynamic, friendship. Like the nuts and bolts of marriage is actually friendship. So again, friendship's another thing you can practice without being married. You can practice spiritual friendships. Again, we say join a group, begin practicing spiritual friendships where you are shoulder-to-shoulder, encouraging one another as you're following the same path together, receiving the teaching of God and helping others to understand it and walking together through the ups and downs of life. C.S. Lewis is helpful in his definition of friendship, and we talked about friendship a few weeks ago from Proverbs, but Lewis says friendship is often something like, oh, you too, right? It's like, oh, you have this thing that you love? I love this thing too. So often friendships are built on affinity. And so what's interesting is a couple can fall in love, have some affinity, and that affinity may just mean you both think the other one's hot, right? Like that may be it. It may be pretty shallow. But a lot of times you, you have things in common too. Like, oh, we both like this thing. Let's do this thing. You know, let's go do this together. Do that together. So you have some things in common, but then everybody changes, right? And so maybe those things are not in common anymore. What happens then? Do you throw out the marriage? No. You, you discipline yourself to build a friendship, It might have been easier before and harder now. You build that friendship, build unity by practicing friendship. So again, I'm going to step back from marriage and say, we're calling all of you to practice the disciplines of friendship by joining a group. When we say join a group, we've got existing groups where we have Bible study and you eat together and pray together. Or you could just grab a friend and say, hey, let's pray together and encourage one another and read the Bible together, right? Like it can be very informal or it can be this the stated public group. But what are the kinds of things that we do in these groups? Well, part of how you build a spiritual friendship is actually eating together. For millennia, human beings have bonded around food. It's a a good idea, right? So that's just a good practice. Again, take this into your marriage. Do you ever have time to eat together? You're both working 80 hours, driving careers in different directions, right? Or do you sit down and eat? Eat food together. It's part of how God made us. Other things that we do in small groups that we should be doing in marriage is just walking side by side, trying to obey Jesus, talking about it, talking about our day, the ups and downs of it. Hey, how was your day today? Sharing what was good, what was bad, the hard things, easy things. One of the gifts that God gives to men by giving them women to marry is helping them talk about their feelings, right? Like, I don't know how I feel. Why are you asking me, right? Like, there's a good practice there of beginning to communicate and get to know each other and understand each other. Again, these are the kinds of things we should be doing in our small group relationships, but it should be core to a marriage as well. Uh, How's your service going? How are you loving God? What's that like? What's your relationship with Jesus like this week, this day? Reading the Bible with each other, encouraging each other, challenging each other, um, groaning to each other, praying for each other. These are the kinds of things that we should be doing in our small groups, and these should also be the core of our marriages. It's spiritual 
friendship. You don't have to have the same hobby to practice the discipline of spiritual friendship. Hobbies make, you know, friendships apart from Christ and apart from marriage easy, but you can practice the discipline of spiritual friendship because we're rowing in the same together, uh, the same direction together. We're following Jesus together. We can encourage one another as spiritual friends. And again, the church should be that for each other no matter what. So let's look at our key text, Proverbs 2.17, before I get too far afield setting it up. Proverbs 2.17 says it this way. Uh, 2.16 is talking about the adulterous woman, the marriage breaker. And 2.17 says she forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. She forsakes the companion of her youth and forsakes, uh, forgets the covenant of her God. This is saying she betrays her best friend, and breaks her covenant. The word companion in Hebrew is aloof. And Derek Kidner talks a lot about how in the ancient Near East, a woman would have been uh, a baby maker, a pleasure provider, property, but not a best friend. It's in the Christian worldview that your wife is to be your best friend. And so the breaking of a marriage is the betraying of a friendship. And so at its heart, marriage is friendship. One of my favorite books on marriage. is called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And I know chapter four, he talks about this a lot, but he talks about it a lot throughout the whole book. Friendship is the core of marriage. If you want to be married, right? Don't pursue romance, pursue friendship. Practice friendship in groups. Practice friendship one-on-one. That's how you find someone who's a good marriage partner. And if you find yourself in marriage saying, yeah, Dave, we just don't have anything in common You have life in common. Life is hard. (laughs) Help each other out. Be there for each other. Be creative. Find things to do together. At different stages of your life, you're going to have different affinities and different stresses, right? So you're always going to be recreating that. My wife and I have been married uh, for almost 30 years now. And there are things that were just natural and easy when we first got married, and then we had kids, and life got crazy, and, you know, things pull us apart, things bring us back together. We constantly are looking for ways to be friends and growing as friends so that I can say she's my best friend. And we love to talk together and we love to walk together and live life together. This is what God calls us to in marriage as well as in the broader body of Christ. Now, a couple of specific applications about marriage in the New Testament that I think are helpful for us to understand this. Um, I think stereotypes of men and women are kind of helpful Um, You need to be careful not to fall off the ditch of saying stereotypes are everything because they don't apply to everybody, right? They're generalities. But you also want to not fall off the other ditch of saying there are no differences between men and women, right? Like those are the kind of two errors of our culture. One is just this like super traditional stereotypes and the other is this like, oh, there's no differences. Men and women are different, y'all, okay? I'm just going to let you know that. It's a reality. When my wife and I first got married, we used to hear a lot of these stereotypes and like marriage books and stuff and think, oh, we're not the, like, we're not the stereotypical man and woman. And it kind of bugged us. But over time, as we've lived into our roles that God calls us to, the stereotypes have made a little more sense. We're still not stereotypical, right? There's a lot of ways that that, uh, I'm, well, anyway, we won't go into the details. You don't need to know that but they can be helpful. And it's helpful to look at the New Testament and say God commands women to something different than he uh, commands men to in marriage. Okay? 
It's asymmetrical. It's not the same thing. So in the New Testament, God never commands women to love their husbands. Can I get an amen, women? (laughs) Say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Uh, All kidding aside, though, he does command you to some pretty hard things, though, as well. There's one verse in English that uses the word love, but it's not that strongest, sacrificial, unconditional love word that is most commonly used for marriage and the love of God. That Greek word is agape. Anybody heard that word before, agape? So that word is often used for husbands to love their wives. Men are commanded to unconditionally, sacrificially love their wives, repeatedly. And then women are commanded, that one time where the word love is used, it's actually the word phileo. Anybody know what that means? Friendship, brotherly love. <laughs> the, one, the only place where women have anything that sounds like love, it's actually more like the word like. So here it is, ladies. <laughs> I'm going to just plead with you. Please like your husbands. <laughs> we know that we were more likable when we first started dating. And then one day we're like clipping our toenails in bed and you're like, I don't even know if I like this guy anymore, right? But it's a discipline, okay? It's a spiritual discipline. You're commanded by God to like your husbands. I like to translate it as think he's cool, okay? Commanded by God to think your husband is cool, to like him, phileo. That's in Titus 2.4. Again and again, though, Ephesians 5 tells husbands to love their wives. How? What's our model? As Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. So women, like your husbands, men, be willing to die for your wives. Sacrificially serve your wives. And I'm going to make it one step harder here. Because I think the beauty of testosterone is it makes men just a little crazy so we want to die for people, right? So there's a part of us as men that's like, yeah, babe, I would take a bullet for you, but I'm not, I don't want to take the trash out for you, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, men, love your wives like, like Christ loved the church, and the ultimate expression of that was death, right? But that's kind of a one-time deal. God is calling you to a daily love, a daily love in the mundane. So I think the other model of Christ's love that's really more important, men, for you to aspire to is the, is the washing of feet, I think that's the picture that Jesus gives us of, of the day in, day out. Serve your wife in the mundane, in the thing that seems small. Serve your wife, man. Love your wife in those ways. Take all of that, that like cape flapping, I'm going to take a bullet for her and, and kneel down and, and wash her feet. That's what God calls us to Loving each other in, in the mundane and the little things. Jesus said this repeatedly to his disciples. You want to serve, you want to, you want to be great, you want to lead, then you serve, right? The way that you achieve greatness, men, is by serving. So serve your wife. She's, she's the front row of service. She's the first one that God's called you to serve. My favorite example of this was Robertson McQuilkin. He was a president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in the 80s. So I know some of y'all weren't even born then. But um, throughout the 80s, he was a very important leader, 
of a Jesus-centered organization that was training pastors to impact the world and sending out missionaries to impact the world. And so Robertson McQuilkin was like a hero to guys like me who are pastors who aspire to take Jesus and share him with the whole world. And so you see guys like that, they're, they're impacting thousands and millions with their influence. But Robertson McQuilkin's wife came down with early onset, uh, onset Alzheimer's uh, around the end of the 80s. So the first couple of years that this started happening, his board uh, provided a caregiver to basically watch his wife during the day while he went to the office to do his important things and manage his $10 million budget and impact the world for Jesus. But you know what happened? His, his wife just like kept breaking out of prison with the caregiver and would like follow her husband to work. It's like a mile away and she's walking back and forth multiple times trying to chase her husband because the only way she could be happy is if she was with him. And at night he'd be helping her get ready for bed and her feet would be bloody because she just kept walking to him again and again. And finally he was like, this is ridiculous. My first promise is to her. So he gave up his $10 million budget and he gave up his presidency and he gave up his worldwide influence so that he could serve his wife and fulfill his vows And what's amazing is that influence he used to have by running a big operation and training people for Jesus, I think he has an even bigger bigger influence now because of his story of sacrifice, right? Like people are inspired by that to share Jesus with the world now. And so that's an example of unity, of serving. So build unity by friendship. Find things in common that you like to do, but bottom line, serve each other, love each other, work at liking each other. The final point is build unity by affection. This will be the fastest one because it makes me uncomfortable and we shouldn't talk about it too much in public anyway. Um, But the Bible has this crazy idea that sex is God's idea and that it's a good gift from God, right? And so again, two ditches. One ditch is we never talk about it because we're like, these Victorians that think sex is dirty and gross, uh, we need to watch out for that extreme, right? The Bible talks about it, so we have to talk about it. The other extreme is our culture's extreme of like, it's everything. It's the center of the universe. Romance is salvation, and sexuality is the most important thing about us. Well, no, that's a little extreme, right? Sex is a good gift that God has given us to bond a couple together and to lead often, not all the time, to reproduction. This is part of God's Design And so again, we have a statement about sexuality and marriage in our constitution. We'd love to talk to you more about it if you have a different view, but I want us to read Proverbs 5, 18 through 19, just thinking in context, how do we build unity in our relationship? So Proverbs 5, 18 through 19, uh, starting about halfway through 18, it says, rejoice in the wife of your youth, rejoice, celebrate. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. And so this is probably for some of you an encouraging thing to hear. Sex is commanded in the Bible, right? It's commanded. It's a good gift that God has given us to bond together in relationship. This is part of why it's so dangerous outside the marriage covenant, because uh, sexuality actually does bond us to people, right? And so if you're in serial relationships, having sex with multiple people, there's a a bonding and a tearing apart and a bonding and a tearing apart, which is damaging to your soul. Now, there's nothing that God can't heal and forgive, so I don't want to make it sound like it's like, you know, the unforgivable sin. 
But you just have to be warned biblically that it, it's hurtful, right? And that this is a good gift. We like to talk about it a lot as like fire in a fireplace. Fire's a great gift in a fireplace, in a contained setting, you know, in an engine compartment, uh, in a, a fire pit in the backyard, in safe ways. Fire is awesome. But it can also burn out of control. There was just a big fire at a pumpkin patch last weekend. It's dangerous. People were hurt. Property was destroyed. And so recognize its power. Sexuality has this great bonding power as a good gift from God to build unity through affection in a relationship. So it's a commanded part of marriage. Also, it's important to think through this. We believe that God has created us. We believe that biology was God's idea. So this is kind of crazy. I'm pushing the line here, but God has created our bodies with great specificity to enjoy human sexuality. Like he's made us for that. And then he says, here, this is a gift for marriage and for building families. Um, And we just see in nature, it actually does help a relationship grow and build. It does unify a couple. Um, Now, just to be clear, the other two I've said, easy to apply in the broader church if you're not married. Sexuality, I just want to be clear and say it out loud. The Bible says if you're not married, you should abstain from sex. And the Bible says that people can be celibate and happy and fulfilled. So we just have to recognize our culture says that's crazy. The Bible says, no, the apostle Paul was single and it was cool. And Jesus was single and that was cool. And that celibacy and singleness can be a great gift from God. So 1 Corinthians 7 is the kind of the main New Testament teaching on this that blesses marriage and it blesses singleness. So sexuality is for marriage and singleness is celibacy. It's a choice and God blesses both things. And it's an actual choice that we have as people. We just don't want to mix up those two callings. So I will say that affection is still something we are to practice, just not sexual affection, right? So the New Testament repeatedly says, brothers and sisters in Christ, you should be practicing the holy kiss. And that can be a little confusing for us because we're not a kissy culture, right? But what it means is non-sexual affection, right? So it's like brothers and sisters in Christ, people need human affection, They need the slap on the back or the high five or the holy side hug or whatever it is in your context, right? It kind of depends on how you were raised even. But humans need affection, handshakes, fist bumps. Like we need each other. We need that human warmth. People need that connection. So we're all to practice some level of affection, just not always sexual affection. So I have a picture here of Adam and Eve. Um, and I chose a silhouette because I didn't want to scandalize you with the naked Adam and Eve. But I do want you to be thinking about the whole concept early on in the creation narratives of Adam and Eve being naked and not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. So I think practicing marital affection is a way to practice uh, being unmasked, not covering up anymore. And what I want to say is that's really only truly possible through the gospel. So again, a spiritual practice of taking off your mask and being real with each other, we would call spiritually confession and prayer. Confession and forgiveness, right? Being real with each other. Again, I want to keep the hard lines. Sexually, physically, that only happens in marriage. But it is an expression of that same concept, of being completely unveiled, being completely yourself, and being accepted 
and loved and rejoiced in. And that is a command of marriage. Throughout the years of counseling, what I've seen is that typically, again, this is a stereotype that's not always true, but if it's true for you, this might be helpful. Women often have a more difficult time being physically uncovered, and men have a harder time being emotionally uncovered. Women, share, uh, women struggle to share themselves physically more. Men struggle to share themselves mentally and emotionally more. Just feels a little more dangerous. I can remember when we first got married, my wife would ask me what I was thinking, and I was like, This seems like an invasion of privacy. I'm not sure I'm not sure if you should know what's in there, because it's dirty and gross and I have a lot of shame and I'm I've trained myself to not tell people what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling, right? It's like a discipline I've built up over the years. And now at twenty I'm being asked, What's in there? I didn't wanna I didn't want to share what was in there, right? But by God's grace, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Naked, outside the city, he bore our shame. All of the shame of the world was on his back. He absorbed that for us so that, so that we can be real with each other. Again, this is only spiritually true outside of marriage, but there's this physical expression of that. We don't want to say it's a sacrament of the church. Protestants usually don't believe it in that same sense, but, but it's something like that. It's a ritual that God gives us to build unity with one another, to express, this is the real me. This is who I am. And we accept each other and rejoice in each other. And it's an emblem then of God's love for us. So the gospel is what allows us to conceive that that God is good because he's taken away our shame. He's gracious. He's forgiving so that we can love each other freely. And that gospel goodness is the same thing that enables us to say, my sexual desires are not the most fundamental thing about me. But God's love for me is the most fundamental thing about me. So what that means is that can teach me then to express proper affection in my marriage or to withhold improper affection if I'm single. The gospel can teach me to do the thing that God calls me to because I know that Jesus is carrying my burdens and giving me grace. He's teaching my heart to obey him. So we'll wrap up here. Loving unity is what we're called to. And again, there's this kind of flourishing, culture-building, world-changing growth and multiplication that God has built in, both physically but also emotionally, into the very foundation of what marriage is. But that's not the foundation. The foundation is God himself. So Ephesians 5 is very clear that when a husband and wife actually love each other, we're, we're making a billboard and pointing to God. We're saying, God loves me, and God's perfect love Within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's sharing that love now with me, and it's multiplying in the world. And so Jesus pointedly and specifically would use bride and groom imagery when he would talk about his love for us again and again and again. So in John 14, when he was leaving his disciples, he was saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. A lot of you probably know the quote in the King James. It says, in my father's house, there are many mansions, right? I don't know if you've heard the King James language. Uh, in the modern translations, it often says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. But he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in first century Judea, 
If you were getting married, you would obey Scripture, you would leave your family of origin, and you would cleave to your husband, cleave to your wife, you'd build a new family. You'd become one flesh. You would unify. And practically what that meant was then you had to build your own apartment. Now, they all lived in multi-generational apartment complexes, basically, right? They had the father's land, and if father wasn't dead yet, you didn't have the land yet, and so you just built an apartment onto dad's apartment. So that's the language that Jesus is using when he's talking to his disciples in John chapter 14. He's like, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to build the apartment for you, bride, and I'm going to come back and get you and bring you home. So Jesus is promising his disciples in a language they understood explicitly. I'm your husband. I love you. I'm going to go build a place for you, and I'm going to come back and get you, and I'm going to bring you home. And that's the hope that we look forward to. But you and I, we doubt, and we're just like Thomas. Because Jesus says, you know, you know the way to get there. Thomas is like, uh, no, we don't. We don't know how to get there. We don't know where you're going. We don't even know what you're talking about, Jesus. Jesus says, no, you do know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Knowing Jesus is the way to loving unity. He's the one that's given himself for us. So we can trust him. We can follow him. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us and you have become one with us through your sacrificial death and through your incredible resurrection. You've conquered sin and death. You've taken away our shame. You've forgiven us. You make us new. You call us now to walk with you in unity. Help us to be not only amazed by that, Lord, but to trust you and follow you in it. And God, I pray that Grace Bible Church would be a place where married couples supernaturally point the world to a loving God. And there would be great spiritual reproduction that would flow out of that love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.